Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation is... Move! Get out of there! George, move! Dad! Move, Dad! Move, Dad! Get out! Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. My name is Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host. Patrick Green, my friend. Hey. Hi. How you doing? I'm doing. I'm ha- I don't know. I'm doing. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, this world yeah. is insane. But I'm it okay. is insane. Okay, you know. 2020, 2021 said, hold my beer. It did. That's it where did. we're at. <laughs> yeah, beer tastes, it tastes uh, crazy. That's, that's yeah. tastes crazy. Yeah. Uh, so today we are joined by somebody who I, has been one of, when I first started getting into podcasting, thanks to Mr. Prater over here, I had a, sh- <laughs> a short list of people that I wanted to talk to. And Alan Dean Foster has been on that short list this entire time because, and you will see this because we have listener comments and questions later. You have been there for my entire fandom journey. I, I, the, picking up that original novel in a thrift shop when I was 10 was one of the things that hooked me so hard into this franchise. So uh, I, I'm already introducing you. I guess I might as well just say welcome to the show, Mr. Alan D. Foster. It's an honor to have you here. Nice to be here, guys. Thank you. So uh, so just for a little bit of background, uh, Alan Dean Foster has been has written about 7,000 novels. I think it's over 120, but it might as well be 120 <laughs> million novels. Uh, many of them have been set within shared universes, like the Humanx universe and other things, which I hope we get time to talk about today. Um, but he's perhaps in this community best known for his extensive novelizations. He's done the novelizations for the Alien novels, as well as some seminal work with Star Wars, which I'm sure we'll get to, uh, and other things, Terminator, Transformers, all sorts of different things. Um, and he's been there since the very beginning of this journey. He's still writing and doing a ton of work uh, today. And so, uh, yeah, welcome to the show. And I guess um, I wanted to start off, if it's okay, with the, the kind of the, the best stupid question I can ask you, which is, why do you write? Uh, actually, that's easy. I like telling stories. I, I always did. I never thought about becoming a writer, which is, I'm sure was really frustrating for all the people I knew who wanted to become writers. Right. I want, what I wanted to do is travel. And a lot of the places I wanted to travel to only existed in my imagination. So I started writing about them. And the fact that other people enjoy coming along on those trips with me is very gratifying, but that's why I, that's why I started writing anything at all. It's just I like telling stories. If if this was hundred thousand years ago, I'd be the itinerant traveler, you know, moving from campfire to campfire, telling stories for my evening, you know, chunk of the mammoth or whatever they killed that day. That's how I'd make my living. 
And you got into it with short stories, correct? And then your first published novel was The Tarim King in 1972, correct? Tarim Crank. But yeah, I sold a couple of short stories. Right. Three, actually. And I thought, well, I'll try a novel. I had been drafted. This was the Vietnam era. And uh, I was going to go into basic training, which was going to tie me up for six months at a minimum. And I thought, before I do that, I have some ideas. I'll try this novel. And then when I get out, I go to law school. And in 20 years, when somebody says, well, what are you doing with yourself these days? I can say, I'm working on a novel, which makes good party conversation. Well, lo and behold, the novel sold on third submission. And I thought, this beats getting up, putting on a suit and a tie and looking up precedents for the rest of my life. Let's give it a shot. I got a part-time teaching job at LA City College and had a year's rent saved and I owned my car. And I thought, I'll give it a year to see what happens. And then I can go to law school if it doesn't work out. And well, you know, it worked out. That first novel that we were just mentioning was set in the same universe as as some novels that you're just publishing as of a couple of years ago, correct? This has been an ongoing, that particular universe, the, the Humanx, correct? Enterprise? Yeah, the Humanx universe, the universe of the Commonwealth, which is the general political organization that humans share with this insectoid race called the Thranx, hence the name Humanx. Uh, it was never designed from, from the get-go to be an expanded universe. Oh, okay. It's one of these things that just growed. Uh, all of the a lot of the background material that's in the Tarim Prang, the first novel that I wrote. Yeah. When I got ready to write a second one and a third one, I thought, well, I don't need to invent a new kind of space drive, star drive for every starship for every new book. I don't need to invent a new governmental background because it's just background. I'll just keep using the same thing. that I did set in that particular universe, the more it became fun, more than anything else, to tie all these things together. But a couple of fans took a lot of this material together, put it all together in kind of a large chapbook. I went over the material and organized it. And then when computers came along, because this all started, as you said, 1972 pre-computer, I was able to put a lot more information up on website. And then I just got in the habit of uh, checking the website and checking the information and updating the information. There's lots of fun stuff there, even though it's an old style website. Uh, oh, it's an, I love your website. I, I, this, you. is a, this is a, a little, uh, just to, uh, like to advertise for you for a second. Your website has like the most extensive information about this particular universe in terms of star logs and maps and all the stuff about the the bio. There's a lot of things in here that we could get into, but I really recommend the URL is alandeanfoster.net, correct? Dot com. Oh, com, right. Uh, check it out if you're at all, in, especially if you only know Alan's work through his novelizations. It is, it's extraordinary the amount of stuff that is in there. Um, and I have a, a question actually related to that that I want to circle back around to, but I do want to let Jamie jump in because I cut him off before. No, I was just curious. Uh, you got your bachelor's in political science. How did... Um, how did you get from, like, what was your intent with that? Obviously, it's infusing your work now, for sure. But what was the beginnings of that as, as a fan of political, of 
political science myself. I was just curious how your journey led you into actually starting to write stories. I was going to be a lawyer. You know, all those aptitude tests you take when you're like in junior high, because obviously nobody in junior high has any clue what they're going to do with their adult life. So they make you take aptitude tests and try to give you some guidance. Mine kept saying lawyer, 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 all the tests I took. So I thought, okay, I'll be a lawyer. Uh, make some money. I'll be able to travel. And you have to have a bachelor's degree before you can get into a law school, or at least that's the general route. And the most obvious one to take seems to be political science. You get a bachelor's degree in political science, then you go into law school. Um, so that's why I was taking political science. Not that I didn't enjoy political science, although that's kind of an oxymoron as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but that was a lot of fun. My senior year, I went to UCLA. Uh, my senior year at UCLA, I had completed all the requirements for political science. I just needed a certain number of additional units to graduate. And I discovered the film department. Now, keep in mind, this is University of California, Los Angeles, where they have access to the entire film and television industry, basically. And I discovered film history courses, which was a terrific racket. You'd go in, you'd take something like the history of American film, 1920 to 1930. The professor would talk for 15 minutes and then you'd watch Buster Keaton for three and a half hours, four units, same as four units of physics, same as four units of higher calculus. This was sweet. a great way to get units is just go in and watch movies. I also took a writing course when I started as a senior because I'd always been a facile writer. It had always been easy for me, even in high school. And I did well and I found a professor who was willing to give me a lot of time and leeway to experiment with certain things as long as I completed the course requirements. And I had so much fun that I thought almost on a whim, because I never had any expectation of getting in, that I would apply to the graduate film school at UCLA. I mean, this is me versus kids who've been making back then eight millimeter movies since they were five years old, like Spielberg. But I got in. So I thought, this is great. It's an MFA, Master of Fine Arts program. It's a year and a half if you go to summer school twice. I'll do that and then I can go to law school. I'll have a master's from UCLA, probably get into any law school in the country. And while I was there, I thought while I was writing all these screenplays for my class assignments, I thought I would try writing some prose and I did some shorts. I did about a dozen short stories and one that was not intended to be a short story sold as a short story. Uh, it was almost by accident. I thought that was fun. So I wrote another one and John W. Campbell bought it for analog. That was a big deal back then, for particularly for a new writer. And then I wrote and sold the third story and then got involved with the army and, and decided to do the novel. And then that sold. And that's how everything got started. That's pretty awesome. It's a lot of early. I feel like so often we hear writers talking about how it took them forever to submit, you know, hundreds and hundreds of things. It sounds like people recognize your gift pretty early on. Um, well, I had 12, 12 stories rejected, remember? Oh, you okay, 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 for a little bit. A dozen stories rejected. The one that sold first was not the first one published, but are you familiar with Arkham House? It's a publisher out of Wisconsin, publishes books, uh, but there's so much Arkham themed stuff now because Lovecraft has become such a big thing. Right. But back then, this was the first publishing house in the United States, small specialty publisher to publish H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, Robert E. Howard, they did Fritz Leiber and Ray Bradbury, 
uh, a lot of other wonderful, wonderful writers who weren't getting published in hardcover in the United States. Um, and Elsa had a twice a year small magazine called the Arkham Collector, which was sent out, no illustrations for people really who were interested in collecting Arkham House books. It's all done by August Derleth, who is somewhat controversial as a writer and editor, but is actually better known as a North Central U.S. regional writer like um, Edna Ferber, that sort of thing. Anyway, uh, I wrote a long Lovecraftian letter because I just discovered Lovecraft. It was all set in the basement of the UCLA library. Oh, and I just thought that Derleth would be amused by it. I forgot all about it. Time passes. I get a letter from Derleth saying, Dear Mr. Foster, I'd like to buy your story, put it in the next issue of the Arkham Collector. And I'm like, wait, what story? <laughs> and it, occurred, it finally struck me that he was talking about the long letter I had sent, which was done. It was a Lovecraftian pastiche. Uh, lo and behold, that was my first sale. But because the Arkham Collector only came out twice a year, the Campbell story and analog, story Campbell bought for analog, came out first. So that was my first publication. That was June 1971. The Derleth story, the story Derleth bought, came out later. So those were my first two story sales. Is that letter published anywhere? Like, is it on your website? Uh, it's in, well, of course, it's in the Arkham Collector. That is a collector's item. That's tough to find. Yeah. But it's in my first collection with friends like these, which Valentine Del Rey published. Uh, that's probably still in print as an ebook, if nothing else. So yes, it's it's certainly available. I'd love to read that. Um, before we get to the novelizations, which of course is is something that I'm sure a lot of people like to hear more about, uh, it seems like something you really love to do in a lot of your books is create very complex ecologies and systems and ways of working, things that kind of fit into the Star Trek mold, right? Where you have a fully operating internal universe. And I'm just wondering, uh, you mentioned that kind of happened a little bit by accident, right? Because you kind of had gotten the work done and then you kept revisiting it. Um, but is that something that you specifically like? Like, what is the process of building that world like? And how do you make sure that it'll hold up, you know, for generations of material like that? It's very difficult. Sequels are the hardest thing to do. So that's why within the universe of the Commonwealth, there are actually separate series. There's the timeline that follows a character named Flinks. Right, the boy, right? His pet, mini drag, Pip. Then there's the Ice Rigger trilogy. Then there's the Founding of the Commonwealth trilogy. And then there are independent novels all set within there. But they all use the same background. And in all, you know, sometimes unexpected ways, they tie together. For example, Skua September, who's an important character in the Ice Rigger trilogy, shows up in Flink's book, The End of the Matter. I love doing stuff like that. I'm just like a, any fan like that, where you've, you've seen six movies. And then suddenly you recognize the table setting from episode three. And it, it breeds familiarity. And I, I like it. I enjoy seeing it and reading it myself. And I know other fans do, and other, other readers do. And that's why I do it. Because it's fun. Some, and, you know, you'll be, be sitting around thinking for an idea. And you'll be thinking about, well, what about that, that main villain's second cousin who appears on one page in book three? You know, I'm now on book eight. Why don't I take him and make him the major character in book eight? That sort of thing. Um, so these books all tied together in little bits and pieces. And then you have standalone novels, which bear no relationship to any series. 
Uh, but sequels are very difficult to do. As to how you keep it, how you juggle it all, if I didn't have the information laid out that I have laid out on the website, which is available on the website, the chronology for the Commonwealth, which shows where all the books fit in chronological order. Uh, you saw that there are galactic maps. If you click on a planet, you get a description of the planet. Uh, I, I would put some planets in years ago. Then I'd go and think, well, what kind of ecology would be on that particular planet? And I'll get a whole novel out of that notion. So it feeds off itself. But you have to have some encyclopedic source material, or there will be some fan in Kansas City who will write and say that, well, your character, this character who's in book 10 in this, in this series, in this sequence, actually had blonde hair in book three. <laughs> Now he has brown hair. What's wrong with you? Don't you know how to write? And, you know, it wasn't so important, say, 30, 40 years ago, because there was no internet. And it was a project for a reader to sit down and write you a letter and put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, send it to you. Now they just sit down and click in between ordering something off Amazon. And uh, they can go into long extended diatribes on the most minuscule things. But... Having said that, I appreciate corrections. I never get angry. If it's a matter of fact or a matter of character or anything else, and it's supported by the fan, then that's great. If it's not supported, I'll give you a current example, which you can use as a segue if you want. <laughs> um, I was so upset with episode eight of Star Wars, The Last Jedi, that I wrote my own treatment trying to retcon as much of the junk in episode eight as I possibly could. Uh, a lot of fans don't like it, but they what they say is this is stupid. Or you know, for example, uh, trying to figure out how Ray has these incredible super Jedi powers without having done much of anything uh, in Episode Eight. What do you do for Episode Nine to explain that? Uh, and I invented this thing where she had a disease and she had that part of her brain replaced with electronics, and that's how she does that. That's what gives her this additional computational power and amplifies her force powers and also lets her be simpatico with droids. Oh, so, you know, you'd see this angry fan stuff saying, well, he made Ray part droid. Well, I didn't make Ray any more part droid than anybody else with a prosthetic. But suddenly she's part droid. People got all upset. I said, well, but nobody asked me, what would you have done in episode nine if you didn't have to retcon episode eight? It would have been completely different. But nobody thinks about that. But it's good that people talk. It's great to have people talking. And um, it'll be curious. I'm curious what you, I mean, I have a rather large question for you about your process. But like, sure. did you think that uh, episode nine um, fixed anything for you? It did. Did it? it? Yeah, it was almost an impossible job. Yeah, it's there, true. There was almost, there were at least attempts. Attempts were made to explain why things in episode eight happened that couldn't be simply explained by hand wavium, which is one way of calling it, or woo, which is another technical term. <laughs> um, you know, the efforts were there. Some succeeded and some didn't. We don't need to go into detail. But the effort it was the effort was made, but it was an impossible task, it really an impossible task. I mean, we don't need to go over and over episode eight. It's been done to death by tens of thousands of fans. 
But just as one common example is if, if a force ghost like Yoda, let's say, can actually interact with the real world by like setting trees on fire, then all he has to do is go on the Emperor's ship and kill everybody. And that's the end of your story. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and it's not just it's not just a problem with Star Wars. In Star Trek, um, I did the book adaptation of Star Trek Into Darkness. Uh, Scotty invents this thing that looks like a 1950s Electrolux vacuum cleaner and that he can hold in his hands, which allows you to transport anywhere in the galaxy. What's interesting is, I mean, as we move on to, I, my question for you is about process and um, essentially collating, but my, the worst film in that series for me was episode nine. I thought it was terrible. Um, but I mean, it, it is interesting that people have the, uh, they have the ability to give their input, unlike they used to have 20 years, 15, 20 years ago, where you just... Things came out, you watched it, you liked it, you moved on, that was it. Whereas now people spend half their times complaining about it or, you know, writing about it. Well, you know, that's what's happened with technology. Uh, this thing Scotty invents, if you can use it to transport anywhere in the galaxy, then that's the end of Starfleet. We don't need starships anymore. <laughs> so they don't think these things through. But uh, it, as far as, it's, it's um, I think it's great. I love fan interaction, even if it's negative. All right, let's have it. Let's talk. Let's let's work this out. Let's see what we can. You know, what's your position? This is my position. And you're right. None of this existed until very recently. The other thing that's a corollary to that is that fans today, readers, and but particularly since we're talking film at the moment, people who look at film and TV, everybody is a director now. Everybody is a writer now, and everyone is so sophisticated from being able to watch all of these films and all of these TV shows at their leisure and watch them over and over again that you can't, if you're making a film, you can't be sloppy anymore. You can't get away with this stuff. I was talking the other day about uh, the big Disney film, John Carter, Mars. Yeah. Every six-year-old kid has seen pictures from all the Martian explorers, the spacecraft, and they know that there are no thoats and six-armed Martians running around. It's like, Daddy, I just saw the pictures from, from uh, Mariner yesterday. There's no nothing, there's nothing like this on Mars. This is fantasy. And so you can't pass that stuff anymore. I think that was the biggest problem with John Carter of Mars. The other one was it took 20 minutes to get to Mars. Uh, and by that time, people were kind of like, you know, what kind of movie is this? But nobody asks me these things. <laughs> probably probably because I always give my opinion and say what I'm thinking. And I can be tactful and diplomatic, but I can I, I I'm not gonna be uh, I'm not gonna lie about stuff, I'm not gonna make stuff up. I'm not gonna well this is why I don't work in Hollywood or politics. Right, right. I think we can all <laughs> we can all agree there's plenty of problems with John Carter and Mark, but I, I do think that what I actually like that movie a lot, but what? Yeah, I do. I thought it was great. Oh, we're going to have an uh, argument about this, Jamie. Yeah, we are. Yeah, um, we are. My question for you, though, is really about you, you're, you have such a large body of work. When I go over everything that you've done, I think, how does this man have time for all this? How do you 
and really that's a, a question as somebody who's a writer myself, I'm not a novelist or anything like that, but um, how do you fit that into your life? What's the process for that? Or is it case by case basis? This is what they need. Do you have people helping you or how does that work? If I knew I'd bottle it and sell it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, I'm a very fast writer. I'm a sprinter. I can't work all day. Bob's Robert Silverberg uh, used to work eight hours a day, five days a week. Uh, the fastest writer I, I know, modern writer, and certainly in science fiction was Isaac Asimov, who did nothing but write. That's one way to do it. His idea of a vacation was to lock himself in a room and write some more. If, you, if you're going to do that all the time, you're going to turn out a lot of material, regardless of whether it's uh, prose or music or art or anything else. I, I'm just a fast writer. Uh, that's all I can say. Uh, the way I do it is I've been told I'm a very visual writer. So I have this little screen that's up here essentially in front of my face, and I just describe what I'm seeing or what I think the character is thinking. Obviously, I'm just I'm a fast writer. There's no, other, there's no other way to say it. Why am I a fast writer? I don't know. Can I type quickly? Yeah, but that's, that's not an explanation. <laughs> I suppose another reason is that my rough drafts are 95% of the final product. So I don't do a lot of rewriting. I do, I do the rough draft, and then I'll go back and proof it, and that's, that's it. That's what I submit. That's for novels. A short story generally takes a day or two. Well, here's a question pivoting around there. Um, as an artist myself, I can't take commissions. I don't work that way. If someone asks me to do something for them, they'll never get it because I don't have the inspiration. How do you as a writer, how does that work for you to turn in work that you've been contracted for that isn't your idea that you infuse and you're, how do you get excited about it to say, okay, and obviously you've been doing this for a very long time, so it's not an issue, but as someone who cannot do something like that, and I'm, I'm sure there are others out there who are similar, how do you get in that space to like, okay, I have a contract signed, they need a book written or whatever, um, based off say Star Wars or whatever, and it's an existing story. Where does that inspiration come for you? Well, with a novel, you generally have enough of a time frame to where time is not necessarily an issue. If it is an issue, then you need to change the time restraints on your contract. With a movie adaptation, which they always want yesterday, that's different. That has to be done very quickly, generally within a couple of months at the most. But you already have the entire plot, all of the characters, and you're basically just expanding something that already exists. Now, you still have to write quickly, yes, but the basics of your novel are already there. With, for example, say a shared universe anthology or a theme anthology. Uh, let's say someone you know, wants a short story set on the moon. They're doing an anthology of moon stories. To me, that's a challenge. And I like a challenge. And it's like, okay. First thing I think, well, story has to involve the moon. All right. What can I do? The next thing I think of, and this works for novels too. What can I do involving that idea, that general notion that's different? Or at least that I think is different. So just as an example, the moon anthology, 
uh, I did a story about a guy who worked for NASA who kept smuggling out in a compartment in his shoes little tiny bits of moon at a time. Uh, samples that have been brought back, you know, for geological research, little tiny pieces, one, two at a time in his shoe with the idea that one day he would be able to sell them on the black market or something. And he kept them in a jar in his basement workshop. And one day he came home, found the jar was empty and he looked completely lost it and finally thought to ask his wife and she used it for cat litter. <laughs> so I thought that was the only moon story I know that involves cat litter as a punchline. Because right. <laughs> I think that's a safe bet. Yeah. And so it was a challenge. I'm always trying to challenge myself with stuff like that. If I'm writing uh, a full novel, let's say, uh, about, let's say it's a world like Midworld, it's set on a world where the trees are a thousand meters high, uh, how do you describe something that's different from terrestrial? jungles, terrestrial um, rainforests. I, I hate the fact that so much science fiction ecology is lazy. It's basically just everything is just a different color or a different size of something that's obviously recognizable as being from Earth. There's a, a fine writer and a great critic, Damon Knight, who once said, if you can take your story and set it in Philadelphia, it's not science fiction. That's a good quote. I like that. So while I'm writing, I always have to be careful about things like that and say, well, I need a tree here. What can I do to make this tree still a tree or something like a tree, but alien? And sometimes uh, you get challenges that are difficult. Alien, which obviously, you know, you might want to talk about. Uh, I, I couldn't get any pictures of the alien from 20th Century Fox. They were so paranoid about pictures leaking out. Of course, everything was done through the mail back then, but they wouldn't send me any pictures. And I'm sitting there trying to write this book and I'm asking them, it's like, the book is called Alien. The movie is called Alien. How do you expect me to write the book and describe the alien without showing me what the alien looks like? And they never did. So if you read the book, there is no description of the alien. Yeah, I, I remember that, yeah. And apparently this idea doesn't go away. Recently, uh, I did the novelization of Alien Covenant. And they asked me, first they asked me to write a prequel, then they said, a sequel, then they asked me to write a prequel to that film. And I said, well, okay. I had, I had what I thought was a terrific idea. Uh, I was going to explore what happened to David. female scientist who survives before they end up on the world of Alien Covenant. But they said, you can't use the alien. You can't use any aliens. I said, wait a minute, you want me to write an alien prequel with no aliens in it? And said, yep. So I did the best I could with what elements of that particular universe I was allowed to use. That was a real challenge too, 
why these should happen, you know. Why Fox should be particularly paranoid, I don't know. But I did the best I could with what they let me do. And that was Origins, correct? That was the the Orange Stone. That's right, Alien Covenant slash Origins. So this actually is a question that um, that I, I had for later on, but but I bring it up now. So Aaron Percival, who you spoke with in 2017 on the AVP Galaxy podcast, uh, is yeah. a really great friend of ours. And you know we were talking about this interview, and he was mentioning how back on that episode, which everybody should listen to, it's episode 51 from 2017. Uh, he, there's a conversation about other directions that that novel might have taken, and how you know there was some pushback from Fox because of ideas being dropped because Scott you know might be using them, for example. So now that it's been a couple of years, we thought it'd be cool to kind of revisit that, if that's okay. I, a quick disclaimer, I want to say the Covenant novel is, I, for, for one thing, Covenant Origins, I think, is wildly interesting. And I think it's it's so it's so cool and it fleshes out the universe in, in many, many different ways. The Covenant novelization, I think, is absolutely, it might be your best novelization work yet. I, and I think many fans will agree with me on that for a number of reasons we can get to in a bit. Um, and, and I'm curious, just it seems like this was a great fit for you in a lot of ways. Uh, what was the process of working on the Covenant novel like, and what were some of the abandoned ideas for prequels slash sequels along the way, if you can talk about them? I can talk about mine, I think. At this point, as you say, a lot of time has passed. Yeah. Uh, just for a little background material, uh, I did Alien, Aliens and Alien 3. Alien 3 was a bad working experience, and I resolved not to do anything, any, anything else with that franchise which is why Alien Resurrection, the novelization was done by A.C. Crispin, who subsequently sent me a very short letter saying, why didn't you warn me? <laughs> and a lot of time passed and then Alien Covenant came along and I was asked to do a book version of that. And at first I said no. And then I was assured by the editors that uh, the Titan that uh, the people who had worked on Alien 3 had nothing to do with Alien Covenant. Plus, Ridley Scott was back. And those two things induced me to agree to do the book. Um, the script I found very interesting. I knew what the alien looked like anyway. And I was able to do some things that I wanted to do and other things they had me take out. Uh, as you know, there are some things in the book that differ from what happens in the film sometimes significantly, uh, but that's how that all came about. As far as dropped ideas or lost ideas, I already mentioned what I wanted to do for a prequel for Alien Covenant instead of Origins, was I wanted to, I had written a whole outline of what happens uh, to uh, the android and the scientist, but I had written what I thought was a really good uh, piece of exposition involving the alien universe and aliens and why the aliens were created and on and on because I don't think David did. I didn't think, never thought David did them. Uh, and since I didn't end up doing a prequel, that whole idea got dropped. And I can't go into any, I can't go into detail on it because maybe Fox will want to use something from it one of these days, and we don't want to give anything away here. Uh, but that was it as far as discarded ideas or ideas. I wasn't given any ideas. I was just given the screenplay for the novel, but at least this time I knew what the, the alien looked like. And they gave me all kinds of help with, I got pictures of the weapons and pictures of the clothing and pictures of, you know, the, the backgrounds. So it was much, much easier to do an accurate representation of what was in the film in the book version. 
I knew for I knew what the spacecraft looked like. I, all those little things that if you take pride in your work in doing these adaptations, you want to be able to include. So it was that was a good experience. I had no problems. I enjoyed doing Alien Covenant. Just briefly, uh, was Alien Three? Uh, so painful because the story kept changing through production, so they had to keep changing what you had to write about? Was that part of it? No, I was pretty much left alone with the version of the script that I was given in the first place and some pre-production photographs, material like that. Uh, what was painful about it was it was a bad script, the one that I had anyway, and I tried to do my usual thing, like I do on films of that nature, like Crow or The Black Hole, where things just happen and don't make any sense. Uh, so I try to fix all those things for, for the fan, for the reader. And I was really proud of the finished job and turned it in and forgot about it and got a letter back from Walter Hill, who was one of the producers saying, you can't do this. The book must follow the screenplay exactly. We think it will make for a better book. So instead of being snarky and coming back and saying, well, I've done this sort of thing for George Lucas and James Cameron and, and Ray Harryhausen and John Carpenter, I didn't do that. It's a work for hire. You have no choice. So I had to go back and take out a lot of the stuff that I had created for Alien 3 in the book and just leave it the, with my, you know, my take on it uh, as it was in the screenplay. In other words, a lot of work got discarded and I thought it was good work. Got it. And I didn't think the comment was, you know, you need to follow the screenplay exactly, uh, made it a better book, mm -hmm. but worse book. Got it. And that's why I didn't do Alien Resurrection. I thought, I'm not going through this again. Yeah. I'm not going to knock myself out to make as good a book as I can and then just have somebody say, well, you know, it's a waste of time. Yeah. Well, you dodged a bullet with that movie anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> It's so fascinating to hear this. This it's it's you know we just talked to Ralph Brown who played uh, Aaron Andrews in uh, in Alien Three a, a few weeks ago, and he similarly was just talking about what you know an an ordeal it was from many angles to to make that film. It seems like the you know J so Jamie and I quick disclaimer it's actually our favorite of all of the the movies, uh, and yet it's uh, it seems like the one that the people involved with it hate detested more than any of any other one. So it's just interesting to hear this angle. I'm I'm curious. Uh, when you're writing these novelizations, are you you're not able to see like for the most part production stills? You're not able to see the actual. You, you don't have a rough cut of the film to watch, right? You're basically working off what's provided to you, and then going with whatever version of the script they give you, and having to kind of generate it. And then when it comes out as a tie-in to the release, kind of hope that it fits. Correct? Is that that's that's the order of events? Sure. Things always change, not just in subsequent versions of the screenplay, but in the course of the actual production itself because there are changes and improvisations take place all the time on the set. Right. Uh, the worst example of that was Terminator Salvation, where they kept changing major components of the story as they were making the film. Mm. And after I had turned in my final version of the book and had it accepted and had my final payment, then got a letter from the editors saying, you know, they've made a few more changes to the film subsequent to your completing your manuscript. Could you possibly see your way to including some of, you know, as many of these as you could in the manuscript? 
and you know being a helpful sap i said sure and what they had done the film the whole film was changed we mm. had been radically changed from the screenplay that i had been able to work from so what i did was in a very short period of time was give the manuscript a complete rewrite because it was the only way to make it accord in any way whatsoever to the finished film and i didn't do that because i had to i'd already been paid I'd had my work accepted, I was done. But book was going to have my name on it. And I feel a responsibility to the readers who plumped down their money for the book. And I felt that the book should accord as much as possible to the finished film. So that's why I did that uh, rather hysterical, you know, 25 hours of work and 24 hour day kind of thing work. I did that for the readers. I didn't get another nickel for that but I felt good about doing it. Well, it's a good thing you type fast. <laughs> yeah, boy. Um, yeah, that was an experience. Um, but generally, I'm left alone to do this. It's interesting. When I was doing Star Trek Into Darkness, they actually sent me a nearly finished version of the film. And the way they did that was they broke it into seven sections and they would send me a section uh, with CIA quality encryption, that is to say, because this is all before the film comes out. And I was able to put that up on one side of my screen and my manuscript on the other side. And I could play what they sent me just like you would uh, any DVD or Blu-ray or, you know, fast forward, stop, freeze, whatever. So I'm able to do that, stop it, write a little, go back, play a little, reverse, go back and check something. That was great. That, that assured me that everything I was describing in the book would be exactly like it was in the film. Mm. Uh, so that, that, was, that was great. That's the only time that's ever happened. Once I finished, say, section three, I had to erase it or delete it. Then they would send me section four. So even though wow. the security on the system is very tight, nobody was taking any chances on me having the entire film on my computer. So if I was hacked, all they would get was one seventh of the film. Wow, that's crazy. It was fun. It was it was great. It's funny hearing you say that uh, you were striving to make it as accurate to the film as possible, because something that came up a lot in what we asked for listener feedback on this, and just when I've been talking to people, um, and something that I agree with is something that we all really appreciate about your novelizations is that they feel like novels, like they feel... I, I think nobody goes into a novelization wanting a facsimile of the movie that they've already seen, presumably, right? And what's so cool about your books is the, is is in many ways how they deviate, how you go into the inner lives of the characters, how some orders of events are different. How, for example, in Covenant, there's this amazing confrontation scene that I I love. You know, your your, your books, I think the the routes that they take make them feel more like whole sort of works of art on themselves and not just like merchandising opportunities. So uh, I guess just as a longtime reader of yours, I want to say I personally love when you go away from the script, as it were. Well, that's the fun part for me, too. I get to make my own director's cut. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm just like the 14-year-old fan sitting in the back of the theater with his friends criticizing the lousy special effects. Right. And I get to see, you know, we're looking at it and it's like, well, that character wouldn't do that. He wouldn't go up the stairs. He'd go out the door and climb the balcony. So in the book, if they'll let me do it, I get to go out, take the character outstairs and send them up the balcony because I think that works better. Sometimes they, you know, sometimes they leave me alone to do stuff like that. 
sometimes in the same book, for example, the novelization of uh, uh, The Force Awakens, they'll make me take out something that seems totally innocuous to me. And it's like, well, why do you want me to take that out? That, that's, that's minuscule, it doesn't mean anything to the film. And then sometimes they'll leave something big in. Uh, for example, they let me fix the Starkiller weapon, which I know this is science fantasy, not science fiction, but you know, it, it really was silly in the film. And I did a lot of research, more research than I needed to do. Uh, it's a novelization, but I wanted to fix that weapon so that it at least had some semblance of practicality. I wanted to put something in the book that might actually, according to the laws of physics as we know them, work. And there's about two pages in that book that is really nothing of a description, nothing but a description of how the Starkiller weapon works. And it took a lot of reading in advanced astrophysics and physics, which I felt safe doing because I figured nobody else is going to understand this stuff, except astrophysicists and physicists who will appreciate the finished product. But for me and for those fans who are interested in science, that's probably the most, that's probably, I'm probably more proud of that part of the book than anything else. There are other things that I had to take out that I was proud of, which has sub subsequently come out in various fan discussions, uh, which I was also very proud of, but I had to take them out. So work for hire. You have no control over it. so interesting to hear that um and and just hearkening back to something that came up earlier uh mr foster does have some authority talking about the star wars sequels because he did do the novelization for the force awakens as well as the first expanded universe novel which is incredibly cool it's an alternate sequel to the original film of course also you worked very closely with george lucas ghost writing the original novel for star wars back in the 70s your history with star wars goes incredibly deep and as somebody who's uh, and jamie we're both obsessed with star wars getting to have you on in that capacity is something else entirely that i wish we had more time to, to delve into we do have however some time to delve into star wars from a different angle um if that's okay <clears throat> which is recently it came out of course that you're being denied royalties for your work which is almost incomprehensible to to many of us out there um, so I'm, I'll give a quick sort of order of events as I understand them. And then if, if we could kind of get over to you and you can kind of walk us through the way things are, that'd be great. Basically, the long story short, it seems, is that um, so Disney acquired Lucasfilm in 2012 and they acquired Fox. You've written dozens of novelizations and franchises tied to those pro properties uh, and they've stopped paying you royalties for it. Um, you wrote this very eloquent, as, as it should be, open letter that was put um, in many places online. Uh, saying that they asked you to sign an, a non-disclosure agreement before you were able to negotiate uh, for your royalties, which you're rightly owed for this work you've done for almost 50 years now. Uh, so can you walk us through this situation a little bit? And uh, and also, if you can help us be more actionable with this in terms of how we can help ensure that this kind of thing doesn't happen again. And as fans around the world, things we could do to kind of hold them accountable to do the right thing. Well, letters to companies always work. You know, writing Disney works. Uh, there are people who wanted to set up an NDA for me. Uh, excuse me, not an NDA. Too many, too many acronyms here. Um, they wanted to set up a fund for me, and I said, if you have, if you want to contribute to this cause, uh, don't send money to me. Send it to the science fiction writer, science fiction fantasy writers of America, SFWA, 
legal fund because I'm not the only one involved in this. It turns out there are other writers who have been similarly stiffed. Uh, what happened was we noticed after time passed, we had been getting royalty reports on the books in question and the royalty reports just stopped. Never mind the royalties stopped, but the royalty reports just stopped. And I knew that the books were still selling. As an example, there's an omnibus edition of the first three alien films called The Complete Alien Omnibus, which never actually has gone out of print, plus ebook sales. And they just, it just all stopped. So my agent at Virginia Kid Agency, being a good agency, uh, started writing and asking. And the response they basically got was from somebody at Disney was, uh, well, yes, we acquired these properties from these companies when we acquired the companies, 20th Century Fox and Lucasfilm, but we did not acquire the obligations. Now, the first line of my contract on Alien, going way back, says that this contract shall be binding, or the terms of this contract shall be binding on the author, gives my name, and the publisher, in that case, Warner Books, and their heirs and assigns which means I'm responsible for if somebody comes along 40 or 50 years later and says he cribbed this entire chapter from something I wrote for high school, I'm responsible for that uh, because I'm the heir and assigned to the terms of that contract. Uh, Disney, since they acquired it, are the heir and assigns to all of the obligations in the contracts involving 20th Century Fox and Lucasfilm and me. Uh, at that point, Science Fiction Writers of America I hope I'm getting this chronology all correct, got involved because there is a very important principle here. Uh, if this is allowed to stand, then any company can buy another company, say we're acquiring their, their uh, assets, but we're not acquiring their obligations. And it doesn't just apply to writing, it becomes a very important is issue in general copyright law. So CIFWA took it up, and all I can say at this point is, or we'll go on for hours about this, is that, uh, as they would say in Hollywood, my people and the mouse's people are talking. And we hope to get it resolved uh, quickly without anybody having to take any further action. And uh, as I say, hopefully it'll be, it'll be taken care of soon. And when it is, both myself and my agents and, uh, and CIFWA will uh, announce that fact. As far as helping me personally, you can write letters to Disney, you can write letters to various publications saying this isn't right, which is basically the nub of it. And uh, that, that works fine. Good. Were, were you surprised at how quickly this spread? I, I feel like this was almost a viral <laughs> moment. It seemed it really took off. Within 24 hours, it was in papers in London and Australia. And yes, it, it went viral very quickly, uh, which is good. At least for me, yeah. Uh, assuming and, really, assuming everything gets resolved properly. And, and you recently had a write-up in the U.S. in USA Today, I think, like a week or so ago. Uh, I don't know about USA Today. I can't keep track. Yeah, Wall Street yeah, Journal. I know yeah. there was a big one in the Wall Street well, Journal. I saw it was a big article in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Um, one of our listeners, his name is uh, Matt John. He's kind of asking, like, what initially, what was, how did that feel to? essentially be denied your royalties um, in the beginning when you're like, oh shit, something's happening. Um, did it, did, was it, like, how did you feel? I would imagine vulnerable and angry and things like that. 
I was just disappointed more than anything else. I've, I've been a huge Disney fan all my life. I grew up with Disney. I saw Walt Disney when I was 10 years old. Really? Years old. Yeah, he was on the Mark Twain Riverboat. It was two weeks after Disneyland opened and my family drove down from Van Nuys. Wow. And every kid, every kid in America knew what Disney looked like because he hosted the Disneyland TV show. And I thought about walking over to him and saying, hi, Mr. Disney or hi, Uncle Walt. But I didn't. And uh, I've never had any, uh, unlike other people, animus against Disney. I used to collect animation. Disney was a big part of that. And so I've never had any problems with Disney per se. And it was almost like, it's almost like uh, somebody you've had as a friend your whole life suddenly turns on you for no reason. And it hurt. I shouldn't be like that. This is Hollywood. This is big corporate America. But I'm a writer, so I'm sensitive. And it hurt. It's like there's no reason. The main problem was there was no reason for it. Right. It wasn't like somebody found a clause in the contract that said, if we sell this company, whoever buys it doesn't have to pay the person attached to this contract. It wasn't anything like that. There was simply no reason for it. And they're not millions of dollars involved here. So there was kind of, this is like pin money for Disney. This is like spare change that you would find in the chairs in the executive uh, cafeteria, the studio. It's nothing to Disney. It's just that somebody, some lower level flunky decided that, well, we can ignore this request for royalties because it would require paperwork. And what are they going to do? And that's the way you know, I feel things originally went down. If somebody in a position of authority had seen this and would have realized that if this becomes an issue, it's not good for the company, it would have been solved immediately. It would never have gone public. I didn't want it to go public. Right. Nobody on you know, my agent, my uh, nobody wanted to go public with this. It's just like you bought, you bought Lucasfilm. You, Lucasfilm's been paying royalties on these two books because you never had a problem with The Force Awakens or The Approaching Storms. Approaching Storm, the other two books I did in the Star Wars universe, because those were later. It's just pay the guy his, you know, pay the guy his royalties. And that's the right thing to do. And it's not going to affect our general balance sheet uh, the way the take for Mulan in China does. It's just, so that's, that's my position. That's the position of my agency, the kid agency. That's the position of CIFWA. And hopefully it'll all be resolved soon should never have gotten to this point. But you can say that about a lot of things in history. Now, World War I, for example, never should have happened. But January 6th. Things, <laughs> yeah, yesterday, right? <laughs> things funny. Things take on a life of their own. And I wish this hadn't. And as soon as it's resolved, it'll go away. So my position is let's get it resolved and make it go away. I have books to write and music to write and things to do and people to see. And I'm sure the people at Disney involved have bigger issues to deal with too. Although this suddenly became a big issue, but uh, we can make it go away. Just do the right thing. Right. And hopefully set a precedent that says that this is something that people will notice. Like people will stand up and say, you can't do that because when you can't just declare eminent domain on something that means this much to people, like the, the work that you and others who have been involved with these for decades is put out. It's a part of our lives, you know? And it pisses us off when it's not treated well. Um, 
I want to move along to a couple more listener questions before we close, if that's okay. Uh, I just want to just do a quick shout out. Um, friends like Andy Geek Girl and others have been sharing uh, photos of our beaten up copies of your novelizations. I could say I have a couple of copies of the first one because the, the very first one that I ever bought is, is essentially just a pile of paper at this point. But these things have been with us for a long time. Um, Patricio Carrasco was wondering about the inner lives of some of the characters in your alien novels, especially think during hypersleep, for example, like sleep sequences and dreams and things. Uh, how do you dive more into the psychology and the backgrounds of these characters who, you know, of course, when you're writing this thing, you haven't met them for the most part yet. They don't actually exist on screen, right? How do you, right. how do you do that? Uh, that's one of the places where you really have to expand when you're doing a book adaptation of a film. And it's one of the best places to do it. It's one of the most enjoyable places to do it. You, you basically have ciphers on screen, particularly in a film like, say, Alien Covenant or Star Wars, where the character's principal job is to move the plot along. You're not sitting there uh, looking into uh, uh, Anakin Skywalker's inner thoughts, but you do that in a book. Same thing with Alien Covenant. These should all be fully realized as much as you have time to do so, fully realized people. And the way you do that as a writer is you get inside their heads. I take what clues I can get from the screenplay. You know, if they say this character is short and feisty and quick to take offense, you can build a lot on that character-wise. And that's what I try to do. Again, sometimes the studio will leave me alone to let me do that. And sometimes, like with um, Alien 3, they'll take it away. Every one of those prisoners who gets turned into Alien Chow in Alien 3 is a real human being. And my thought was from the get-go, why are these people on this horrible prison planet? What on earth did they do to deserve to be sent here? Have they changed at all? Do they have any chance of redemption? How do they get along with each other? So many things that you as a writer have the opportunity to explore. Very cool. So our listener, Darren Gold asks, what do you think of the prequels and what do you see as the future of Alien? Rather loaded question. By prequels, are we talking about Prometheus? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Prometheus and Covenant and then like where it could go from there. Right, well... I know where I'd take it, but it's not my franchise. Uh, one of the problems with franchises like Alien and Star Wars, and fr frankly, any big science fiction production in the motion picture business that becomes more than one film, is that first, the filmmakers always feel for some reason they have to top everything they did in the first film in the next film, and on and on down the line with sequels. That's not always a good way to expand. You don't always have to have bigger explosions and bigger weapons. There are other ways to go, I feel. Uh, amen, amen. Always been a fan of that. Is, speaking of amens, the other thing is, they, get, they tend to get, the filmmakers tend to get delusions of grandeur. <laughs> it's happened with the black hole, happening with Alien, happened with Star Wars. It's like suddenly we have to solve the meaning of life and who God is, and everything about the universe for now and forever. When what fans really want is a continuation of the preceding story in an entertaining and sensible and logical manner, and you don't have to solve all the great questions of existence in the next film. If you try to do that, then when you try to do it in the third film, you're screwed because there's no way you can go bigger. Right. It's not always necessary to go bigger. I'll give two examples of what I think are really good recent science fiction films. Really good. Uh, one is Arrival. Yeah. Which 
is based on a story by, surprise, surprise, a guy who writes science fiction, Ted Chiang. The other one is Annihilation. Yeah, these are two yes. of my favorites you're bringing up. Surprise, surprise, a book by a guy who writes science fiction. Yeah. You would think that Hollywood would look at these things and take a hint. Okay, good film from a story by a science fiction writer. Good film by a story from a science fiction writer. And lo and behold, we are now getting Foundation. That's going to be a tough job. This is not a lot of action in Foundation. And perhaps even more importantly, Dune. And there's plenty of action in Dune. And what I've seen of Dune Part 1, because that's what the first film is, so far looks wonderful. It looks, I knew Frank Herbert, Frank would love it. Frank would love what they've done so far, even though we've only seen bits and pieces and trailers. Oh, it's so good to hear that. So and, you know, it, it's, uh, I have some disagreements with the design of the still suits, but I'm not an art director, so what do I know? But otherwise, everything looks fantastic. The attention to detail is wonderful. And I'm looking forward to seeing that film in IMAX. Yeah. Not on a home screen. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, talk about studios making decisions unilaterally that affect filmmakers and, and artists, just like what happened. You know, it's similar to what happened with you with Disney. Like this is a, a chance where, you know, Denis Villeneuve stood up for what was right, which was that he had already agreed to terms, which was that this will be released safely in theaters when it can be, but it's not going to be put out on television screens, right? And you wrote this letter. It went micro viral at least, and the studio listened, and now they're hopefully going to respond to it in kind. Well, some films you can handle on a small screen. Uh, you know, comedies, the obvious things. Right. Uh, and some things are spectacles meant to be seen on a big screen. Wonder Woman's, you know, considering that half the theaters can't even show films, doing okay at the box office. But I'm not running Warner Brothers or any other film studio, so I don't have any idea what the bottom line looks like or anything else. And uh, They're kind of re- between a rock and a hard place. They really are. Yeah. But some films should simply be not released simultaneously on television and the idea based on what we've seen so far of looking at of watching dune on a 40 inch screen is just crazy yeah i can't wait i hope i hope i find a double imax i, I want to build a double imax <laughs> and see that as, as large i'm as flying out to to connecticut you're coming to out see to the east movie. coast we're absolutely projected on the side of a, of a <laughs> yacht somewhere i think um so I I I, I want to let you go soon. I, I just want to. There's a, a bunch more listener things that I'm I'm gonna kind of skip through here a little bit, but they all kind of a lot of them coalesce into something similar. So our great friend Dave Gogol um, brought up the Covenant novelization, which has emerged as a fan favorite, I think, in, in many of our minds, um, and says part of what he appreciates is that it fills in logic gaps and things like that, as many of your novels do, which we've already discussed to a degree. Dave Turner says uh, he he loves the part in the Alien novelization where uh, Dallas con- confronts Ash as the alien guardian, another one of these kind of deviations from the film as it was released. And Philip Willarczyk says, uh, basically summing this up, how do you respond to differences like this? So, you know, logic gap differences or differences tonally or differences of characterizations when you see the movie when it comes out versus knowing what you've written and what's been released. Is it like strange for you or does does it, do you sort of like just embrace it as the strangeness of the universe, you know? Well, I expect it simply because as we discussed earlier, things inevitably change between the time the, manu- the manuscript is turned in and the time the film is released. Uh, some things don't bother me. Some of the changes, some things do bother me. And uh, there's, nothing, there's nothing I can do about it. All I can do is 
you sit back you know, little things like an alien covenant since that seems to be a, a favorite here uh if, you know by sheer coincidence running across this signal in space and then the whole design of the spacecraft in alien covenant with solar sails you wouldn't have enough solar particles out in intergalactic space to move a ship two feet over a period of, of six months so i had to find a way to adapt the science this doesn't matter in the film unless you're a dedicated science fiction fan people look at it and say okay it's got these big things that come out from the side and it works let's let's move on i can't move on i just can't i should it would be easier for me but i can't do it i have to fix things or uh the scene where they they land uh uh, they put the scout craft down on the planet in Alien Covenant, and people get out and immediately take their helmets off. Right. <laughs> and things like that bother me. It may look good in the film, but it's an easy thing to fix. That's right. an easy thing to fix, which I fixed in the book. And anyway. you do in the book, and that is actually the explanation that I use with people now when they bring it up. And, and it's funny because it's not... Well, movie, but, you know, but I, yes, there is something in the movie where they say they... There's been readings taken of the atmosphere. They did atmospheric um, scans, true. And they said they were fine. I mean, not that, just because you can't, yeah, danger isn't sometimes things that you can see or things that you can analyze. That was my problem with with um, Prometheus. Just because the air is breathable doesn't mean the air is safe. Look at us right now. You know, we can breathe the air, but that doesn't mean it's safe for us. Yeah, for sure. Well, Jamie, do you have anything else before we close? Um, I had one last question. Oh, yes, last question. Um, have you been approached by studios saying, hey, we want to do another movie in this series or whatever? What would your idea be? And I know you did Splinter of, in the Mind's Eye uh, or Splinter of the Mind's Eye, uh, which was going to be a low budget if Star Wars didn't do very well, which I think would be fascinating. Um, I even love that title so much. They should use that title one day. Um, but post that, have you ever been approached to kind of get an idea started for another series, an, another film in a series? No, not in the series. Independent films, yes. Okay. Or adaptations of my own work. But the problem is not that people don't want to do these things. The problem is that people need lots of money. Mm -hmm. It always becomes not a question of choice or decision. Uh, it becomes a question of money. There are producers who've wanted to do uh, Spellsinger as in, for years and years and years. I think it would make a wonderful animated film. Uh, there are people who've wanted to do books in the Humax Commonwealth series. It's just a question of money. And you have a limited number of places you can go to try to finance big films. You can't do something like Ice Trigger or Midworld on a low budget. You can do it on a medium budget, but not on a low budget. Yeah. And when it becomes real money, it becomes an issue of, uh, well, how many copies did the book sell? Uh, yes, it has people who love it, dedicated fans, but we can do a John Grisham book instead or a Stephen King short story instead. And that's why a lot of great stuff, not necessarily mine, but a lot of great science fiction doesn't get made some of it is not suitable to be a science fiction film uh, they tried to do the guy who owned the rights to uh, childhood's end from the beginning arthur arthur p jacobs mm -hmm. and did planet of the apes bought the rights when the book came out in 1955 mm. and spent decades trying to get it made morgan freeman i think still owns the rights 
to Rendezvous with Romney, another Clark book. He can't get it made. If Morgan Freeman can't get the film made, you know, then what chance does anybody have? Fortunately, we now have multiple platforms yeah. uh, via streaming and cable that allow people to do big books in a series and not have to throw 200 million at a single film, which spreads the cost and spreads the risk and basically reduces the risk to nothing if you account it in with everything else that the network is doing. So you can get a version of Foundation. We got a version from the Sci-Fi Channel, not too bad either of Childhood's End. They find reasons to make changes. I don't know why they feel a necessity to make so many changes, but uh, I never saw that. It looked interesting. I need to. It's good. It's not great, but it's good, and it's probably the best version of Childhood's End we'll ever get. It's a difficult book to adapt. It's basically about the next step up in human evolution. Right. Is that with the guy with the antlers? Is that what Child? I did see that. That was very fascinating. Yes. 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 It, it reads better. It's a difficult book to visualize. That's why I say Foundation. The Foundation trilogy is going to be tough. Because mm-hmm. most of the three books is dialogue. Mm-hmm. There aren't big battle scenes. There's not a lot of moving for moving pictures. In Foundation, it'll be very interesting to see what they do. Dune is a whole other thing. That's easy. There's. Have you seen the trailers for uh, Foundation? It looks beautiful. It looks amazing. Least. I think the production is like yeah. gorgeous. I saw one that's being well made, obviously. Yeah. It's a question of uh, you know how they're going to deal with uh, how they're going to deal with a lack of action. I'm sure they figured it out or they wouldn't be doing it. There are all these problems. I mean, Guillermo del Toro, whose dream has been to do H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, yeah. which is another kind of problematical property for, for several reasons, but nothing that can't be fixed. If he can't get that made, uh, it, you see how difficult it becomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny. At the Mountains of Madness is probably my favorite Lovecraft. And, and it's and it's it's one that every time I've seen anybody try to actually visualize any of the creatures in it or anything, it immediately becomes not scary anymore. But reading it, it's it's horrifying because it is sort of the unknown. Part of why your alien novelization works so well, I think, is because you don't describe the alien in any great detail for reasons you've already elucidated. And so your imagination kind of fills in the blanks. And there's something very Lovecrafting about that. There's a million challenges with translating science fiction to the screen properly. Um, and I think that those are, it's funny, Jamie and I have talked quite a bit about Dune, um, which is something close to our hearts. And we're actually doing a, a, a mini series podcast on that in the lead up to the film. Um, and for me, that seems like an, almost an impossible film to make because, well, I mean, Lynch already tried it because there are these great set pieces and things, but like then 85% of the novel is like inner monologue. So I'm sort of like, where do you go with that? Right. But people do it. And I think Danny Villeneuve will do an incredible job. At least they have that. Yes, he will, because he obviously loves science fiction. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a critical, if you start from that point, if your creative people, the people who are making the film or making the TV series, respect and love what they're doing, you're going to get a project that, if nothing else, is true to the original material. Yeah. Before, before I forget, before we go, for people who are curious about this, obviously they are, or I wouldn't be doing podcasts. Uh, I have a book coming out in April from Centipede Press called The Director Should Have Shot You which details my entire history insofar as I can remember it with novelizations. Oh my God. How cool is that? Wow, that's awesome. Very first one, Luana in 1973. The last one in the book is alien covenant. And a lot of the things that we don't have time to talk about on a podcast are in that book. Wow. Great. The director should have shot me. Director should have shot you. Should, should have shot you. <laughs> should have shot you. <laughs> Coming out in April. Yes. There's also an explanation of the title, which I don't want to give that away, but uh, 
relates oh, to another can't. novelization. Can we, is awesome. it available for pre-order or anything? Do you know? As, as I think question. so. You can always write Centipede Press. We go to their website online and inquire about pre-orders. Cool. Well, we will do that. Um, Fantastic. We're going to say goodbye. Before we do, I have two rapid fire questions for you. You can just kind of throw out there. Uh, first is what's your favorite thing you've written? And second is who's an author many of us might not have heard of that you recommend we check out? Okay. Uh, it, it's awkward to ask a creative person what they think their best work is. Right. If there's a body of work, let's say. So I can't really point to any one thing. I leave that up to the readers. But I'm very proud of my short stories. And I have eight or nine collections of short fiction out there. And I always recommend those because unlike with a novel, if somebody doesn't like one story, maybe they'll like the next one mm. in the book. Uh, so I recommend the short story collections. And uh, my most recent novel is Fantasy is Madringa is out from Wordfire Press. Uh, so there's that. And as far as recommending something that people may not be familiar with, uh, presumably science fiction or fantasy, uh, there was a wonderful writer named Daniel Galloway. He had a runner-up Hugo one year, a book called Dark Universe. He wrote another book called Lords of the Psycon, and a lot of other science fiction. Uh, not very well known today. Uh, he was a newspaper man in New Orleans, wrote really interesting stuff. Uh, so I recommend his work. Again, going back far, you can you can pull a lot of people out of the hat that people today haven't heard of. But there's no point in recommending somebody if the stuff's not in print. My all-time favorite science fiction writers, I'll name three, and that'll be a quick way of getting this done. Uh, number three is Robert Sheckley, who I think to this day is the best short story writer the field has ever produced. Uh, a story had come out in 1950 uh, called Watchbird Deals with Armed Drones. So Whoa, crazy. Yes. Uh, my second one was a writer named Murray Leinster, who was just a pure storyteller. And my all-time favorite science fiction writer was a British writer named Derek Frank Russell, who was the only writer in science fiction who could make me both laugh and cry and wrote what I think and a lot of other people think may be the funniest science fiction story ever written. It's called Plus X was the short version. Uh, I forget the name of the long. There was a longer version in Ace called The Ultimate Invader and a still longer version that I forget the title of. But you can look up. Just look up Eric Frank Russell. Uh, to, is, there's a... Uh, a little component in analog previously astounding magazine called the Anal analytical laboratory where readers can vote for their favorite stories. And then the, the number one story would get an extra penny a word. And the number second story would get a half penny a word, which was big deal uh, for a long time. And to this day, I think plus X, the original Russell story is the highest rated story ever to appear in the analytical laboratory. Wow. Really? Yeah. Russell was a wonderful writer, wonderful, won a Hugo a long time ago. And uh, so there's three recommendations within the field, plus Daniel Gowie, who is unfortunately largely overlooked today and shouldn't be. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, Mr. Yeah. Alan Dean Foster, thank you so much for giving your time. I know it's a crazy era for all of us, and we are under various forms of lockdown and kind of making our way through the world. But your art continues to inspire, and uh, this has been just such a, a lifelong dream for me seriously to get to talk to you so thank you for being here with us today and thank you for listening to our listener questions and things and know that you are so beloved as you have always been in the community and uh we can't wait to see what you got coming next thank you my thank pleasure you. my pleasure for more on perfect organism the alien saga podcast please visit perfectorganism.com 
Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.